episode 24 alexander the great podcast hope everyone is doing good write me a review on itunes if you are enjoying the podcast tell your friends about it and also you can send me a donation which lots of people have been doing thank you so much for donating to the podcast it really helps and um, I just want to say also, you know, thank you to everyone because this podcast is doing quite well. You know, it's doing much better than what I was uh, planning, what I was thinking it was going to do. So thank you very much, everyone, and hope you enjoy the episode that's about to come. Last time we saw Alexander go to Corinth. He said a quick hello to Diogenes and then began his journey home back to Macedonia. On his way back, he stopped at Delphi, who was going to start his campaign against Persia. Might as well see what the Oracle of Apollo Pythia had to say. They were running slightly late. They started, they stayed in Corinth a bit more than they planned. They arrived at Delphi mid-November. They informed him that unfortunately Pythia was unable to consult Apollo because during the months from November to February, according to Greek religion, Apollo travels north. Alexander doesn't do well with rejection, so he decides to enter the oracle. He grabs poor old Pythia. He wants to put her on the tripod. Listen, lady, I really have to get going. And as she's being dragged, she says, Anikitos i o pai, meaning, young man, you are invincible. Alexander stops. Hmm, okay, I'm good with that. And lets the lovely lady go back to her business. To show his appreciation, he gave the oracle 150 gold philippos, which is a good amount of money when you consider he found a completely empty royal treasury. Some of his friends had to lend him money to start the campaign. The Macedonian treasury had 70 talents when he first took over, enough to keep the show going for 30 days. It's been said he took 500 talents when he first became king and before starting the campaign an extra 800 talents. Now, as I said, Apollo was up north. So he who was in charge of the oracle was Dionysus, Apollo's ally. Therefore, it was Diodonus, uh, the Diodonus, Dionysus, fucking Dionysus, Dionysus <laughs> would, uh, would have been insulted by Alexander's actions. And we should remember there was Dionysus, Dionysus, who represented human manic tendencies. And as we're going to see Alexander in the future, he's going to slightly lose his shit, to put it mildly. Perhaps it's his behavior at this instance that made it so. Now, this I've taken from John Maxwell's O'Brien's book, uh, Alexander the Great, The Invisible Enemy. A nice little book, 300-something pages. He talks about Alexander and how his chronic use of alcohol may have affected his personality. Now, you know, some drunks get angry the more they drink probably alexander was one of those kinds of drunks a few of our ancient sources mention this story and the oracle of delphi the others courtius and plutarch being our main ones courtius and uh, plutarch give us a full explanation of what happened courtius lets us know that he took it from plutarch and the others mentions it in a passing manner at the end of his book on alexander chapter 93 book 17 he simply says oh yeah and Pythia told him that he was going to be unbeatable 
Some say he kept it as a title. Yes, yeah. Hello, it's me, Alexander the Unbeatable. Others say that it doesn't suit Alexander's personality. He was deeply religious. He would never insult something as sacred as the Oracle of Delphi, especially before undertaking the most important phase of his career. And it sounds a little like Heracles' story, Heracles, who also visited the Oracle to purify himself from his brother Apollo, from the manic rage that had taken hold of him, and even went as far as killing his own wife, which he loved dearly. The Oracle refused to answer Heracles, who then lifted the tripod and threatened to move the Oracle elsewhere. Apollo then came in blasting, turning this whole thing to a massive shit show, forcing Zeus to intervene by sending a thunderbolt which calmed everything and everyone down. Heracles did get the advice he wanted, as did Alexander. I've mentioned a number of times Alexander was a descendant from Heracles, so it's probably, you know, something in the family's DNA. They always find a way to get what they want. We are in the winter of 336. Alexander doesn't have a lot of doesn't have a lot of money left. Philip's economic model was if you want to make money, you have to be in a state of war. And anything you make, you spend it because if you don't, your economy fails. Alexander didn't go straight for war. He would take a step back, train his army well and get them ready to cross the Balkan mountain range. So he was targeting the north. The north, as we saw in previous episodes, was calm for now. In the spring of 335, Alexander ordered a squadron of warships to set sail from Byzantium to the Black Sea and from there to the Danube, where the main army, as well as himself, would wait for them, probably close to uh, today's Bulgaria's Rus, which is located south of Bucharest. Alexander started off with 15,000 infantry and 5,000 cavalry soldiers and was heading to Amphipolis. In Christonia, he sacrificed, he sacrificed at the temple of Dionysus, probably asking for forgiveness about what happened at Delphi, if we believe that story. On the fire, he threw meat, which made it extra angry and made it reach unusual heights. And that in turn made Alexander slightly worried, even made him ask his own oracles, you know, is this a good sign or have I messed up somewhere? But they quickly tell him it's an amazing sign. It's the gods letting him know of the great glories that are about to come. This calmed our boy down. He was pleased with what was said. From Amphipolis, he went towards the land of the Thracians through a town called Neapoli, close to today's Kavala, crossing the Nestos River, then heading north towards Filipopoli, today's Plovdiv. Now, up until then, all was going well. He was going through friendly areas, areas that his father Philip had given autonomy. But in a gorge somewhere in the Balkan mountains, some unknown Thracian tribes set up a blockade. Uh, they put up a, uh, a bunch of carriages forcing the Macedonians. So the Macedonians have nowhere to go. They don't have time to climb the mountain. Alexander assesses the situation and realizes what he has to do. One of his most important talents, seeing how the enemy was moving and coming up on the spot with a tactic that he was uh, he was to follow. It's possible 
that if you see your enemy park a bunch of carriages, you know, you'd think they've done so to create a defense line between themselves and the Macedonians. Alexander didn't think they did all this to create a defense line. He knew the cheeky Thracians were up to something. They were a fiery bunch. He could tell that they wanted to eliminate the Macedonian phalanx by driving the carriages right into them. So he gave his men the following order. Those who have room to spread out and allow the carriages to pass them, and those who can't kneel or lie next to each other, put their shields side to side, allowing the carriages to go over them. And it went exactly how Alexander planned. Arian tells us that from this genius move, not a single Macedonian was lost. So the Thracians' plan didn't go well, you know, more was to follow, the battle turned to shit as well. Alexander, with his officers and his Agrianes, managed to get in through the left flank of the enemy. The archers slowed down the route, the right side, then the men of the phalanx, the ones that were run over by the carriages, after dusting off the gear, you know, and trying probably to calm their heart on, you know, having survived an attack like that, you know, charge at the enemy, forcing them to flee. They leave behind supplies, with the Macedonia, which the Macedonians gladly took. They would come in handy. And their women and children, which Alexander ordered to be sent back to Macedonia to be used as slaves. Now, the above story with the carriages going over the soldiers and whatnot is one of the first stories given to us by Arian. You know, which makes it really cool. So you start off, you decide to read one of the ancient sources, and you happen to choose Arian, which is, of course, the best decision to make. And he takes you immediately to this amazing scene, setting a precedent for what's to come. Alexander comes down the gorge and crosses the plains of the Danube without any resistance. They take a break on the flags, on the banks, <laughs> apologies, on the banks of the Lai Jin River. I'm hope, I hope I'm uh, pronouncing that correctly. Three days march from the Danube. The Trevelyans have been following them. They are in their land, you know, so they're slightly obligated to do so. We've talked about the Trevelyans in the past. Philip had a battle against them after going against Byzantium. Didn't really go his way for Philip, you know, he was seriously injured and the Macedonians were forced to flee, leaving behind many spoils they had taken from various sieges and battles. The Trevelyans, with Sirmo as their leader, sent soldiers, women and children to an island in the Danube called Pefki. On the same island, some Thracians arrived that were looking for refuge from Alexander. At the same time, when the Macedonians left the Lygian River, the Trevelyans sent a big chunk of their army where Alexander was the previous day. When Alexander realized what happened, he turned his army back to go against them. They hid in a deep gully so he couldn't go in with his phalanx and sent his archers and slingers and you know, just went ham, you know, probably the first ever blitzkrieg. The opposition gets pissed, you know, imagine having an arrow or a rock hit you while you're trying to relax, you know, fun fact, <laughs> I've been watching a lot of young Sheldon, sorry for that, fun fact, the Macedonians thought they were being funny, they would carve the word catch on the rock. <laughs> so you imagine you're getting slingshot with something that says catch on, yeah, fucking hell, very funny. So the Trevelyans start attacking. Alexander orders Philotas with 
the companion's cavalry to attack the right side and Iraklidis with Sopolis with cavalry with cavalrymen from Viotia and Amphipolis to attack the left flank. Any remaining cavalrymen just join the Macedonian phalanx in the center and attack from there. According to Arian, 3,000 Trevelians after a hard battle die and few are taken as prisoners. A good amount managed to escape. They were deep in the forest, making it easy for them to hide in the darkness. According to to Ptolemy, from the Macedonian army, 11 cavalry and 40 infantry men died. Now, Alexander, without most certainty, can say he has avenged his father's loss in 339. After winning the battle, it took Alexander three days to reach the Danube, or Istros, as it was called then which we don't know, don't know how, but he managed to meet the squadron of ships he had sent from Byzantium at precisely the time he also arrived, you know, like he planned this whole thing, proving once more that he's a military genius or the luckiest cunt you ever met. Um, they met opposite the little island Pefki, where some Trevelyans and Thracians met, you know, talked about them earlier. Alexander tried sending some soldiers and a few ships to go towards the island, but without much success. The currents were too strong, it was rocky, so you couldn't really uh, get ashore, and you know you can't attack with the speed that was necessary, so he says fuck it for the time being. He saw that on the opposite side of the Danube, a massive team of Gete soldiers had gathered. The Gete were a nomad tribe living in what today we call northern Bulgaria. Alexander tells us they were about uh, there were about four thousand cavalry and ten thousand infantry soldiers. And Alexander, we're told by Arian, Pothos elaveafton epetina tu istro elthin. Pothos is the word that I want to really focus on. Pothos means lust or desire, or craving. So Alexander saw them just looking ready for war and got a massive boner, man, you know? I can't wait to put my hands on them, you know? Um, <laughs> it reminds me of um, of a episode from Joe Rogan. He had Tyson on, and that was a few years ago, and he asked Rogan, you know, Mike Tyson, asked Rogan, why do I get aroused before I'm getting ready to fight, you know? <laughs> And Rogan was like, fucking hell, I don't know, man. Maybe you need to talk to a professional for that. Well, we see Alexander feeling the same thing here, you know. Uh, Let me show them what Greek lover truly means, you know. Uh, He may be feeling the craving due to the minor setback he had due to the island and not being able to successfully have his soldiers on it. He wasn't the man, though. He wasn't the kind of man that did well with losses, irregardless of how small they may be. So he sees the Getty, he knows they are there to back the Trevelyans and the Thracians, and he wants to send soldiers there. The problem was he didn't have enough ships to move them. So he ordered his men for a uh, to do a quick DIY project. They were told to take the skins that they used as tents, stuff them with dry leaves, and with that made <laughs> and with that he made fucking rafts. What a crazy guy, right? And uh, also, they should just steal any little boats they find around the area. The locals had a few fishermen, and they used their boats made of a single tree trunk. You know, don't worry, lads. You know, we're gonna put them back when we're done. <laughs> and um, and with a little bit, a little bit of this and a little bit of that, Alexander sent fifteen hundred cavalry and four thousand infantry soldiers. 
Now, he just accomplished something that his father never could. He crossed the Danube, a historical moment. They disembark on the island in the middle of the night, so the Gete didn't have a clue what happened. They found a spot where the grass was higher than usual. Alexander ordered them to have their sarises sideways so they could push the grass out of the way, allowing them to travel easier. They reached a wide open field. He had uh, the cavalry from the right side with himself in charge and the infantry on the left in a square layout under Nicanoras. Alexander started the attack with a cavalry by his side. Nicanoras didn't really have to do much. The moment the Gete laid eyes on the Macedonians approaching, they decided to flee. Their thinking was that they had enough time to get ready. They were hoping Alexander was going to have to make a bridge of some sort and use that to have his army cross. But no, our lads were gagging to do something about them. The poor Gete, you know, they they grabbed anything they could, kids, women, supplies and such. You know, they originally reached a town about six kilometers from the Danube, but Alexander followed them, forcing them to run into the woods, you know, as nomads do. They can live wherever they want. Alexander doesn't chase them, but he does occupy the town they left behind. He had a lad called Meleargos, and Philip saw out the bounty, meaning sell what you can and keep what we need for ourselves. Then he had the town looted, completely destroyed. <laughs> you know, it's a pretty easy choice to make. They didn't have that much, and he also sent a message to everyone else nearby. He offered a sacrifice to the river, to Heracles, and to Zeus the Saviour, via Sotira in Greek. Uh, So Alexander again proved he was deeply religious and it's also interesting he sacrificed to the river. You know, he feels he has to thank it for allowing his army to cross safely. And after all this, he returned to his base. Various ambassadors uh, from people that lived near the Danube visited him, including the Celts and the king of the Trevelyans, Sirmos. They asked for a friendship with Alexander. They literally sent him a friend request, (laughs) Uh, which sounds so 2007, doesn't it? People follow now, but anyway, you know what I mean. Uh, I'm impressed by the Celts showing up. You know, they had the reputation of the fearless warrior. You know, they were tall. They had weird facial hair, you know, those long moustache people. They came from the Adriatic Sea, so the body of water between Italy, Croatia and Albania. I imagine, you know, they simply came to check out what was happening. You know, who is this young king? You know, he, he's had a few victories in, in the north. Let's go and check him out. Alexander also had heard stories about the Celts and he asked them, so what are you guys afraid of? Alexander was hoping they would say, just you, bro. You're the only thing we're afraid of. But the Celts didn't give two shits about what Alexander wanted to hear. They replied, the only thing we are afraid of is if the sky falls on our head. (laughs) Alexander was slightly pissed at this, you know, probably rolled his eyes a little. The Celts might have seen this or realized that this is a wrong person to fuck with. So added, but above all, my lord, we put our friendship with people like you. Alexander was like, okay, I don't even have time for you, but whatever. Apparently, he was even heard telling his friends that they, that these odd bunch of barbarians have a high opinion of themselves. They have no reason to be afraid of him. 
you know, just don't fuck with me. Uh, Tony Montana kind of thing. And they, uh, and then each group of people went their own way. Our team then headed south following the Danube. They went through the Sipka lands. One of Alexander's friends came to visit, Lagaros, king of the Agrianes. Alexander went to him when he ran away from home after his big argument with Daddy Philip, you know, because of Attalus, as you might remember. Lagaros was also Philip's friend. You know, he was a good lad. He tells him Clitos, son of Vardilis, also talked, to him, talked about him a while ago, king of an Illyrian tribe, has decided to defect convincing Glafkias, king of the Talavdi, and another Illyrian tribe, the Aftariates, to follow suit. Alexander was familiar with Kletos and Glafkias. You know, his father conquered them. But who was uh, who were these Aftariates? Aftariates? You know, never heard of them. He asked Lagaros, you know, who also brought his very own husky and brawly army officers, Ipaspistes, they called them back then, who are these Aftariates, you know, what's the situation, is their army well trained and that sort of thing. Lagaros tells him, bro, don't worry about it. They were not really known for their talent in war games. Uh, you know, I will sort it out, nothing but that day, quick incursion by my lads over here and I can't fix. You know, you just do your own thing. Alexander gave his blessing. Lagaros went on with his raid, which was, by the way, completely successful as far as raids go. It was top-notch, you know, the best. The town was pillaged, lots of killing and lots of spoils. For this act, and generally for being an awesome friend, Alexander will give many gifts to Lagaros and promised him when he visits in Macedonia, his sister's Kina's hand in marriage was waiting for him. Unfortunately, Lagaros never came, never became Alexander's brother-in-law. When he arrived back in his country, he fell ill and died. But anyway, Alexander's attention was focused now on Kletos and Glafkias. He followed the Erigona River close to today's Skopje and headed and headed towards Pelio. Kletos had gone towards that direction, as it was for him the biggest and most. Uh, well-defended city. Alexander camped close to Devil River, which uh, today flows through Albania. He tells his men that tomorrow they'll be attacking. Kletos ordered his men to run the hills, and if they saw anyone coming close, attack. Glafkias and Kletos have yet to join forces. Alexander continued his march against the city Kletos was hiding in, which I remind you was an Illyrian, you know, and the Illyrians have an odd habit of going overboard when it came to sacrificing to the gods. They sacrificed three black male goats, three young ladies and three young lads. They were trying to purify their city. I seriously doubt it helped. Uh, those who were sacrificed for the general good were called pharmakon, which in today's Greek means medicine. But they were also called katharma which again uh, in today's Greek is used as an insult, meaning scum or fuckface or something along those lines. Probably it has something to do with the people, <laughs> with the type of people that were being used for the sacrifice. You know, it makes you think, uh, <laughs> let's just choose the bad people, you know, which <laughs> sounds like an excuse to get rid of anyone you don't really fancy. So they do their sacrifice, everything went well. All that's left to do now is attack Alexander and send him home, right? But it didn't go their way. Even after the first conflict, the Illyrians were, we are told by Arian, abandoned their 
positions, leaving behind the animals they had just slaughtered for dinner. The Illyrians then go back to the city's walls. They close their gates, making sure no Macedonian enters. Alexander moved his army just at the city's walls. This has him thinking, you know, which would be the best way to punish these cowards. He built a wall around their own city, <laughs> locking them in. This sounds a lot like what Julius Caesar did against Vercingetorix. He took it a step further and built two rolls of walls. And um, anyway, it, it reminds me a bit of uh, if you've seen a film called A Bronx Tale, which is an amazing fucking film. Uh, these bikers enter a, uh, a mob restaurant and, you know, the mob restaurant guys, they ask him, you know, we don't want any trouble because they were breaking glasses and being, you know, dickheads. Can you please leave? And they say, no, you know, no, fuck it. All right. Well, no, we want to stay here. We just want to have a want to have some pasta, man. And uh, then the mob guys lock the door and they say, well, you had your chance to leave and now you can't. And then continue to beat the shit out of them. Anyway. Where the fuck was I? Uh, Bronx Tale, Bronx Tale. Yes, locking them in. The next day, Glavkias, king of the Talavdini, arrived. Glavkias brought a bunch of soldiers with him. Alexander sees that things aren't really going to plan. If, if Glavkias broke, the, broke through the walls and attacked him, he would have a problem. You know, also supplies were running low. So he sent Philotas, Parmenion's son, by the way, with some cavalry to find some food for his men. Glavkias finds out that Philotas was out and about, you know, walking freely without a care in the world, so he organized a massive search looking for him. Alexander hears that his body was in danger, so he took 400 cavalrymen, along with Samipaspistes, archers and Agrianes, and went to help Philotas. Glavkias saw Alexander and Philotas at some point. They were returning to their base, so he decided enough was enough, time to call it quits. Arian paints a nice picture. He says that the forest was so dense that Alexander's men had to walk in rows of four. Uh, you know, I don't know, it's, imagine watching, you know, maybe 700 people in rows of four walking in the mountain woods, you know, something satisfying about that. Alexander reached his base. They all rested for a while, and early the next day, he ordered all his men to gather in a proper military formation, like they were getting ready for inspection. Right in front of the plains, Glavkias and his men had camped. Can you think of a bigger fuck you than that? You know, probably not. The phalanx was lined up 120 men deep, with a team of 200 cavalrymen on each side. Alexander tells him, all you have to do, lads, is listen to my orders, you know, and do as I say. He was basically putting on a show about how well his army was trained. To begin with, the phalanx, um, they would all have their sadises tall, you know, so pointing up. Alexander gave the order for them to be lowered, so it appears that they are ready for battle. Then, depending on which order was given, they would all have now to the left, to the right. Two steps this time now, <laughs> and they would, you know, they would form shapes, circles, uh, squares, uh, triangles, you know, must have been an amazing and scary thing to see, you know, 15,000 Sadisses moving at the same time. The barbarians were speechless, you know, slowly they were even moving closer, almost enchanted, 
almost enchanted by how the Macedonian army moved. Alexander was looking at every move they were making and when the time was right he gave the signal and the left side of the cavalry formed a wedge and attacked the barbarians. Meanwhile, the men that were in the phalanx started hitting their shields, you know, and running towards the Talavdios, shouting the famous Macedonian cry, that's what, that's what they were saying, apparently. Now, of course, you know, me doing that noise, <laughs> that doesn't sound very scary, but if 15,000 soldiers did it, you know, especially after being silent for some time, I bet it would scare the shit out of you, uh, which is what happened to Glafkias' men. They immediately fled and went inside their walls. Alexander saw that some had remained on the hill, so he took his bodyguards and some cavalry and decided to chase them. A battle then took place close to a river. Some of Clitus's men came to help. Alexander then ordered his men to bring the catapults. You know, bear in mind that catapults were only used for sieging. And Alexander, for the first time ever in recorded human history, was about to use catapults as, a, as an artillery unit. Cletus's men were unable to offer any help, forcing them to retreat. Alexander had just managed to escape a trap that they had set for him. Then he made it seem him he himself was retreating. He just took his men a few kilometers down the road and rested them, rested them for three days. He then sent some of his spies to see what the barbarians were up to. They had completely gone off the rails. They acted as if there was never even a battle. Alexander, for all they knew, was back home, you know, crying to his mummy. Green has a nice quote in his book on Alexander, an amazing read if you're looking for a book on Alexander, uh, Peter Green. Uh, the enemy's overconfidence and lack of discipline are powerful allies of any skilled general. Alexander must have been pleased. He probably expected them to react this way. So he marched against them himself in front of course, followed by his bodyguards, the Agrianes and his archers. Everyone else followed at their own pace. He attacked in the middle of the night. The Agrianes were sent first, then the archers. Most of the enemies were attacked while sleeping. Uh, which is slightly strange. You know, imagine having a lovely dream only for it to be disturbed by a Macedonian infantry soldier's blade cutting through your neck. Doesn't seem like the most pleasant experience. Panic followed. To begin with, they had no idea how they could escape. Some managed to escape, but were still caught while they were fleeing. Lots of blood, you know, they were truly massacred, more like Alexander the Executioner than Alexander the Great at this stage of his career. Clitos and Glafkias managed to escape. In his desperation, Clitos set fire to Pelio, not giving the Macedonians any plunder. For the time, for the time being, they are going to set camp in a stronghold clo close to the Rachio. Glafkias will enter our story again in 314. Cassander will go against him. God willing, we shall talk about him in the future. Cassander ain't no Alexander. Things didn't work out for him, proving once more that racing isn't always about the car you drive. It's who's driving. <laughs>